Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Namaste and welcome to yet another episode of Eight Women, a networking and mentoring platform for women of the diaspora. Through our podcasts, we aim to reach out to a sisterhood of underserved women and inspire them with stories of women who have surmounted all odds to achieve success. Our guest today, Priya Doraswamy, is a fantastic example of this vision. Priya owns an independent literary agency, Lotus Lane Literary, based in New Jersey. Many aspiring authors owe their bestsellers to her belief in them. But publishing was not how Priya started her career. Au contraire, she was formerly a deputy attorney general in Newark, prosecuting cases of securities fraud. Talk about a midlife career pivot. Priya has been there and done it. She first came to my attention when I was looking to pursue my own literary dreams. After researching Priya and speaking with her, I realized she is also a perfect fit for our podcast. Plus, for our listeners who aren't aware, we are kindred souls as women who rock our great tresses. And now, without further chatter, let's listen to how this versatile woman turned her passion for reading into a lifelong obsession. Hi Priya, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much Monica. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm curious, what made you decide to stay gray because that is a tough decision for most women. I'm going to be 51 this year. So I turned 40 obviously 11 years ago and decided that I was going to just stop coloring my hair. I started graying in my mid 20s and I dyed it and some 10 years later I was like why on earth am I coloring my hair? So I stopped coloring my hair and I had two options. One is obviously shave it off and let it all come out gray or the painful way where I just let it grow out. It was a unanimous family decision where they said just grow it out. And so for 2 years it was obviously very painful for them cuz I don't need to see myself in the mirror every morning but they had to see me. It took a long time cuz black dye is super strong and it sits in your hair. I was like Cruella and I didn't really cut it down. I didn't do any other chemical stuff to it. I just let it be. There's no looking back since then. It's just been so fantastic. I love it. I truly love it. And it looks beautiful on you. You look lovely. Oh. What are some of your favorite childhood memories of growing up in Bangalore? Did you ever imagine you'd go so far away? No, you know, we were literally living in the moment. I feel like as children that's what we do. We really don't foresee it was the 70s and 80s let life happen sort of things. Growing up in Bangalore was really fabulous. The best way to describe Bangalore when I was growing up was small town big heart. 
I had very loving parents and we lived close to our grandparents, both sides. A lot of cousins would come spend summers. We were super close to my dad's side of the family, my mom's side of the family. I have 16 first cousins on my dad's side. We would get together for like two months in the summer and it was incredible. And same for my mom's side. We didn't have such a big family, but my cousins would show up and we walked everywhere. It's such a walking city. As soon as we were old enough, we would walk to school and to the movies. It was just really very idyllic. It was really nice. And Bangalore was just beautiful. The weather was great throughout the year. It sounds a bit like R.K. Narayan's Malguri days kind of life. Exactly right. Life was simple. R.K. Narayan really got that beautifully. I went to Ship Cotton Girls School, all girls school. We had none of the stresses of body image or any of that growing up. Maybe it's also cultural to a certain extent. I was 28 or 29 when I first got my eyebrows waxed. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Nobody ever talked about shaving your armpits. We just grew up in a very easy body positivity, body neutrality image. Exactly what boys had, I think girls had. At least for me, that was my experience. And even with my friends, all my girlfriends growing up, whether it was middle school or high school, those things really never factored into our lives. It was like a fulfilled childhood, I suppose. How did it shape the woman you are today? Oh gosh, so much. I'm so grateful for that experience. I know that I shouldn't get stuck on, oh, I've added another 10 pounds or I'm going gray or my eyebrows are not perfect because all of it is so transient. Our bodies are changing every single day. If we had to focus on something that's temporary, then we're always going to be crazy. How I look on the outside is not my truth. My truth is who I am from the inside. What makes Priya really? Priya is a literary agent, Priya is a mom, Priya is a friend, Priya is a wife, Priya is a daughter, Priya is a daughter-in-law, Priya is an aunt. It's a little bit of all of that. And Priya is just my name, but it doesn't define me. I think it just gives me a better understanding of how to be in this world. It's how we look at other people too, which makes you less judgy. I'm not saying I'm not judgy. Of course, we're all judgy, but it makes you less so. And you're sort of zeroing in on that person you meet for the first time. For example, when you and I spoke, we spoke on the phone and it was just such a lovely conversation we had. I already feel like I know you, like you said, kindred spirit. (laughs) You talk about being a compulsive reader. Any books that shaped your childhood, your adult life, any favorite book, any incident in a book that you think about and remember? Growing up, we read a lot. Bangalore had reading libraries. Every little locality had their own reading library. What that meant was a private individual would stock their garage with all sorts of books. It was a lending library. When we would visit my grandparents, it became a daily thing for us in our summer vacation. We would go with my grandfather, check out books. At that time, Just getting books from the United States and the UK, it was all very special and fun. We did the whole Enid Blyton and Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys. In India, they didn't really have home publishing until very recently, maybe 30 years ago, because a lot of the books were imported. As you know, we grew up reading a lot of Western writers. I really wish we were able to access more translations when we were growing up. There were some fantastic writers that made me want to read more As I was getting into adulthood, of course, we had our Indian writers showing up, Upamanyu Chatterjee, Bharti Mukherjee. And it's hard for me to pinpoint particular 
writers. I just read very widely. I love Kiran Desai. I loved her. Hullabaloo with the Guava Archer. It's one of my favorite books. I like funny books. I like books that have a little bit of humor and show society in a light that we can laugh about and enjoy, but not in a bad way, but like, oh my God, I totally relate to this person. What brought you to the US? I got married. <laughs> I was 20 and Anant, my husband was 25. We had an arranged marriage. Anant was already here when I got married and he was working at Citibank. We got married in June and then I came over in December. I transferred all my credits because I was doing a BA in economics and sociology. As you know, in India, it's a three-year course, but in the United States, you need a four-year undergraduate degree. So I transferred all my credits to a community college here called Montclair State, which is now a university. I did one year and then I graduated with a economics degree. Then I joined Dow Jones as a contracts administrator. That was really fun. I worked with them for a couple of years, and then I decided to go to law school. I joined Seton Hall Law. When I graduated, I got a job with one of my most inspiring women that I've ever met, Judge Susan Reisner, and I clerked with her. She was a judge in the equity courts. I learned so much from her, Monica, She is still so inspiring and she was a huge role model for me. Just having a really beautiful, empathetic, amazing woman boss was fantastic. I've had a lot of great women in my life. My mom, my grandmom, my aunts, my mother-in-law, all of them such good role models for me. And then, of course, Susan Reisner came along and just watching her, I learned so much. She was so kind and she was always so respectful of everybody in her courtroom whether it were the defendants, the defendants' lawyers, watching and observing really helped me. So to your point with Ake Women, how important it is to have that mentorship, my goal is to carry that forward. So I have an intern or whether I'm talking to younger women or men, doesn't matter. That whole approach you take to be really empathetic and just be there for them, listen to them, be in the moment with them, really hear them out. That's what we all crave for meaningful time with somebody. Most bases would be like, where can we make the most money and go into private practice? But I'm curious why you decided to choose government. And then as a woman of color, it's difficult anyway to establish yourself. Would it have made a difference if you didn't have a mentor? Oh, great question. I went to law school with the idea of doing public service. My goal was not to join a law firm because it's just not who I am. Working for the government, it's brilliant, and I would do it in a heartbeat. But obviously, it's also sort of commiserate with the amount of salary you receive. Living in the Northeast, as you know, it's expensive. I'm so grateful that I was able to do that because my husband was able to also bring in income. I've always been motivated by public service, and I just really love the idea of working and facilitating progress or change or help. That also comes from growing up in a family where my dad was an orthopedic surgeon in Bangalore, and he did so many free surgeries. All his patients came from everywhere, and a lot of them couldn't really afford anything. And he did so much free service, and he never, ever, ever talked about it, which is the whole idea of doing seva. You do it because it's what's authentic and it's what's pure. He was really quite an amazing role model for me. Even my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they were all in service. Maybe that just sort of percolated. It was very important that I do something that meant something to me. That's how I got into public service. It was really brilliant to work with the government. I had a wonderful boss, Steve Resnick. 
And he also was such a wonderful role model for me. So I went from Susan Reister as my judge for a year, learned so much inside the courtroom, outside the courtroom, how to be as a person. And then I was so lucky to have Steve be my boss in the fraud prosecution unit. He taught me such great life lessons. I still remember an incident. We were getting into an elevator one day, Steve and I were going to court. And as we stepped in, there were a couple of women and one of the women stepped back and she said, I'm sorry. We were like, no, it's okay. And when we got off and as we were walking to the courthouse, Steve was like, you know, Priya, I've observed this a lot. Why do women say they're sorry when there's nothing to be sorry about? And he said, well, case in point, as we got into this elevator, this woman said, sorry. And she should not be apologizing. Why is she apologizing? Sorry that we're occupying space. Sorry for our existence. You don't need to be sorry. Do you see men saying they're sorry? And I'm like, no, I never observed that. And I thought, you know what? He's right. Why do we do that? And so as a little exercise for myself, the next time I was on an elevator, I was observing and it was the same thing. Women would always say they're sorry and step back. These little things that people point out to you stuck in me. And so now when I step into an elevator, I make it a point not to say I'm sorry. One of the things of working for the government as a lawyer is that they throw you into cases. I remember the first deposition he took me to of actually a South Asian gentleman who was charged with a pyramid scheme. He said, just observe. And the defendant pleaded the fifth. It was so interesting to watch that whole procedure. And he said, well, the next time you depose, he's yours. I was like, oh my God, what do you say? And he's like, no, that's how you learn. I really appreciated that opportunity and him as a boss. He was around for about a year or so, and then he left. Did you get a chance to have many diverse cases or were you kind of stuck in one track? She's South Asian. Let's give her South Asian cases. No, no. It was whatever came across my desk. This one just happened to be a South Asian gentleman. We did very different cases. A lot of it were pyramid schemes. Some of them were Wall Street type cases. In my department, we just did the civil end of things. And if we saw that there was interstate criminality, then we would get the FBI involved because they had criminal jurisdiction. Once they were done, then we would resume our case. You have to do the criminal side of it first and then the civil side of it. I have to say, in my 30 years of living as an immigrant here in the Northeast, I've never really faced racism. Maybe it's the fact that I live in New Jersey and the tri-state area is super diverse. In terms of work opportunities, it's never been an issue for me. That's interesting. Did your children ever face it in school? or? No, my kids did not face it in school. Well, if they've experienced it, they've never really told me about it. Do you think it's difficult for South Asian women to make a career in law? Because I was an immigrant, I knew nobody in the law. The fact that I got an opportunity with Judge Reisner, it was, in my opinion, a true meritocracy. I was finishing up law school. She interviewed me. She offered me the position. I did not know any lawyers in the United States when I decided to practice law. The fact that I was able to get this clerkship with her, and it was a phenomenal clerkship. And then I got into the AG's office without knowing a single soul. I appreciate that a lot. And I think that is the beauty about this country, at least in my experience. And I think in my husband's experience too. He graduated from IIT and then he went to business school here, but he knew nobody in finance. He got his break and then he did what he had to do. For me, it was the same. I did not know anybody and I was given a chance. 
Is there racism? Of course there is, right? I'm not blind. I'm not naive. It was just putting my head down and working and questioning if I thought something was wrong or something was right. That was it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you think it's necessary for women to have somebody to mentor them? A hundred percent. Mentorship is always great because ultimately, I think for women, we need our tribe. And I would include the mentor in your tribe. It could be anybody. It could be a neighbor as a role model, or it could be a teacher at your child's school, or it could be an ex-colleague, or it could be the priest in your temple, or it could be in your own family, your sister, aunt, mother. Who would you have considered as a mentor in your life? Do you have any mentee? Yeah. So for me, my mentors have been my mother, my mother-in-law, my aunt who lives in Texas. She's amazing. My sister. And of course, I had amazing bosses. Susan Reisner was just brilliant. We're still such good friends after all these years. My children and my husband, I just learned from all of these people, especially my children. I love it. There's so many things I just don't know. I think it's just keeping your ears open and being able to say, I don't know this and show me how to do this. Or, hey, I'm really confused. What do I do? My mentors are the editors of publishing houses sometimes because we've developed such wonderful, warm relationships where I've picked up the phone and called an editor to say, I'm just really confused about this thing. I don't know what this is. Can you tell me? And they're like, of course, it's that community and it's sisterhood, but there are also men in it. I'm going to include men in my sisterhood. Why not? Or even just talking to writers. If people look at me for expertise, and if I don't know something, I'm going to say, well, I just really don't know about that, but I can get back to you on it. That's a very important trait to have, regardless of who you are and what you're doing. I have a full-time intern, but she's part-time through the year, and she's a young, bright woman who's a senior in high school. She's been a mentee since her sophomore year. I was just so impressed by this young woman, Ashna Mujani. She's going away to college soon, but I'm hoping that we'll continue working together because we can. It's remote. I mentee her. I tell her all the time, the qualities you need are empathy and compassion. No matter what you do, where you go, always look at people with kindness. Whether you're successful or not successful, you have to be empathetic. The world opens in beautiful ways when you're able to give and then you'll receive. On that positive note, let's pivot completely. Your husband was 
transferred to Singapore and like a good wife you followed in there and you became one of these expat wives of the diaspora who could not follow a career how were those early days and how did life change it was so much fun <laughs> Living the expat dream, it was really great. I was playing tennis, meeting people for lunches and shopping like a maniac because I am a compulsive shopper. Singapore was such a surprise. It just came out of the blue in our lives. But I'm so glad we went along for the ride and my husband took that opportunity. When we moved, Rajiv, my older son was five and Ram was a year and a half. We had a wonderful woman, Dilrukshi, who was our full-time help at home. She's Sri Lankan and she's actually here. We had her back with us and she met a wonderful Sri Lankan man here. They're married. They have a child. They live in Staten Island. She became such a part of our family and we still adore her. We had a blast. We were traveling a lot. My husband was the head of Asia Pacific doing commodities. As you know, with women, we have to find our tribe. I made some really nice friends. It was a busy life. And then about a year and a half, or two later, I was like, I need to find some employment, keep my mind busy and really keep me off the streets because I was shopping so much. I'll admit it. <laughs> now that it has changed my shopping behavior, I'm good for economies. I'm all about spending. <laughs> I met this woman. She was a mom at the same school that our kids went to. Her daughter was a couple of years older and she was running a literary agency out of India and she was also a trailing spouse. I knew nothing about publishing at all, except the fact that I read when she heard I was looking for a job, she was like, hey, come work with me, be my partner. And I was like, really? It was Providence. That's how I began my second career as a literary agent. It was really fun getting to know the industry. And it just really kept my mind busy and active. I was curious to learn about this whole other business. By nature, I am interested in people. You need that as one of the qualities of being an agent because you're talking to so many authors and temperaments. And also being a lawyer helped with framing books. That was a subconscious thing, having written drafts. Because when you're a lawyer, you're still telling a story to the judge or the jury based on facts and based on law. It's the same with books, whether it's science fiction or whether it's romance or nonfiction. We're telling a story and trying to convince the reader. That came easy to me, trying to map out a story, question characters in the story, connecting the dots. We worked together for a couple of years. I moved back to the United States in 2010. And then we worked together for a couple more years. And my partner wanted to do other stuff with the agency, which I did not. So then we decided that we'd part ways. I started Lotus Lane Literary in 2013. Did you not want to go back into law? When I got back, it was difficult because I really loved being a prosecutor. I loved working the cases. But for me, it was also being a mom because when we came back, Rajiv was in the fourth grade and then Ram was in first grade. I really wanted to be around for them. If I went back to prosecuting, then my days would be consumed by my work. I thought if I continue as a literary agent, then I can work from home and I can still ostensibly do everything because that's what we silly women do sometimes. You say ostensibly. Is there any incident that rings a bell? When you work from home, it's still working. I think it's a fallacy. We women say, oh, I can work from home because from nine to two, I'll wear my professional hat. And then from two to six, I'll be mommy hat. And then from six to nine, I'll be 
white hat, but it doesn't work like that. That means that I am working all the time. That's the nature of being in a business where all I need is my phone because I'm reading. So I can read from my phone or I'm talking to clients or I'm talking to editors. I'm attached to my work all the time. I love it. So I don't begrudge it, but there are no boundaries. That's something you can develop. So when I say ostensibly, I'd be driving to school to watch Rajiv and Ram in a play, but I'd be on a work call going to school. You can never shut it off. Nobody understands what it means when you're working from home unless you're truly doing it. Because guess what? You still have to stop and you still have to make that meal. And being Indian, anything to do with Indian food, there's chopping and sauteing. So whether you're cooking vegetarian or not, it's still work. The pressure cooker is on, you have to make a dal and then you have to make a sabji and then you have to make the rice. And it's not that you can be hands off. And how much can you take out? I don't cook every single day, but we are happy to eat leftovers and that's fine. You did have your Sri Lankan lady. Yes, it was so amazing for me because in those five years, I was really able to put a lot of energy into being active in my kids' school, just volunteering, which was really fantastic. And that's a time that you can really do it because once they come to middle school, they're independent. I was able to really focus on Lotus Lane Literary. did not know anybody in the New York publishing scene And I literally spent a whole year just cold calling editors. How challenging was it to set up a literary agency? Was it more challenging because you're a minority woman or did that not factor in? It did not factor in. The good news for me was because I'm a lawyer, setting up my company was really easy. I went online and spent 20 minutes, incorporated my company A wonderful young woman in Bombay created my logo. Once I got all of the formalities out of the way, I subscribed to this trade portal called Publishers Marketplace. It's really wonderful. You have access and exposure to the publishing industry. I would literally study what editors acquired. I was working with Jaipriya and we had a lot of Indian writers, mainly selling to Indian publishers. When I came here, I'm like, I have to have American writers. This is where I am. I started building up my list here, literally cold calling, meeting for coffees, meeting for lunches to say, when I have a book, I will send it to you. Can I just tell you, editors here are amazing. They're so agnostic, whether you're a solo newbie agent or if you're working for a big WME or a CAA. As long as you bring them the next great book, they don't care. This is what I love about America. Do you remember the first client you had? I do. My first ever client is Dr. Aparna Santanam. She's a phenomenal dermatologist based in Bombay, actually. She's very well-versed in skin. And Kaya Clinics asked her to come and oversee that whole thing. She was approached by a publisher. And at that time, I wasn't an agent. She shared the contract with me because we were friends. I looked at it and then about a month and a half later, I'm like, I can represent you. I am now a literary agent. It was amazing. So the first book that I represented is a book called Skin Deep, which is still so dear to my heart. We sold it to HarperCollins and it became an instant bestseller. Even now, 10 years later, it's still around. It's a wonderful, wonderful book because there was really nothing on skincare for Indian women until then. Since then, she's written a bunch of other books. Each one of them has done so well. And now she started her own podcast. She's my first and she'll always be with me. It's a great success story. 
how many authors have you represented and how many of them have had success right now i have about 50 55 writers but obviously they're not all active at the same time there are some writers who i represented they wrote their books and the contract was completed so i no longer represent them and then some writers decided to find other agents which was fine i've sold if i had a count over 200 books which is kind of crazy a lot of indian ones or is it a balance do you think the landscape is changing for minority authors It's a combination. Indian writers, American writers. I have a wonderful Singaporean writers. My list is truly international. It just so happened that I've loved all the books that I've represented. That's typical of any literary agent. It's a subjective thing. It's taste and also market. I have a very diverse list. Has it changed a little bit? I'm really enthused by some of the change that's finally happening in American publishing, especially when it has to do with black writing, because I just feel we really need. so much more of that and south asians of course i feel african americans really need to be given their time because there's some phenomenal writers and it's just so hard to really get behind those books but now things are changing and i hope that momentum continues with south asian writing it's hard but any book to get published is difficult and what propels you to fight for your clients just the belief that this book has to be read if it can change 10 people in the way they think or if it can impact you in some positive way or help you understand the world better then why not everybody wants a bestseller but to have a bestseller there's so many other things that are intangible a lot of luck a lot of timing being at the right place at the right time all of that really comes into play there are plenty of great books that never become bestsellers but doesn't mean they should be discarded for me it's fighting to say i think this book will really impact readers and you should definitely publish it that's why i stick to a book if it takes me a year and a half sometimes it does you talked about being on the ellen show any interesting incident that happened while you were there oh gosh it was so fun tom and lucy riles are my authors and they've written this really sweet very timely book it's called mom versus dad Tom actually worked for the Ellen show. He was their show warmer for some years, the stand-up comedian. Ellen has had them before on the show and then when this book came out, she was like, "Let's have you on the show." I was literally sitting in my office at home and they had all this technology set up. I participated remotely and it was really just so eye-opening to be a part of that show because I just adore Ellen. There was a lot of different episodes and then they got to talk about their book and their lives. It was so much fun. Any tips for women who are coming back again into the work field after having taken time off yes the first thing is not to be guilty we're so consumed by guilt because it's all these expectations that we think should be fulfilled right whether you hear something from your mom your dad your husband your kids or from your peer group figure out who you are you're not going to be your mom you are your own person If that means that you have to do things differently then do it and don't feel guilty for it but just really know that that's what you want to do. We all have our inner voice. You just have to be able to listen to it and believe in it. Maybe you're 50, 52 and your kids have just gone to college. There's so many skills you have. You could have been in a professional career before you've decided to give up and stay home with your kids. There are so many possibilities. You can either go back to the career you loved or you can do other things that you have expertise in. It could be anything. Start small. Whatever you love, if you like cooking, if you're an avid gardener, things that really give you joy, 
but yet you're really good at and find that place. Does Priya Dora Swami ever switch off? What do you do for leisure activities? I love gardening. I'm a wannabe gardener. I actually made compost. Started it on my birthday last year and I was able to compost about 25 pots this year. So I was thrilled. It was really fun. I'm totally into that right now. I love walking. I live in suburban New Jersey and it's beautiful out here. So I'm able to do that. I watch movies. I like music a lot. I listen to lots of different music. I used to train in Carnatic classical. So once in a way, I'll whip out my tamburi and sing. And then just hanging out with family, my sons, with my husband, my sister lives close by. So what's really nice, it's a combination. And of course, reading, I wish I could read more for pleasure, but I really can't because I'm constantly looking at books in my own work mode. I have a rapid fire round for you. Are you ready? Ready. Short Hills or Bangalore? Now Short Hill. Fiction or non-fiction? Fiction. The most valuable skill needed as an agent? I would say patience would be the number one quality. The best compliment you've received? That when I'm talking to a writer, I'm fully engaged and they really appreciate that I hear them. I'm so grateful for that. What do you miss most about India? I miss Bangalore weather a lot. I miss my friends. I miss the hustle bustle. Law or literary life? Literary life. Skirts or salvars? I'm a sorry lady. Wow. Favorite cuisine? Indian. Favorite author? Ooh, tough. I'm going to pass. <laughs> Grisham or Earl Stanley Gardner? Stanley Gardner when I was younger, because we read a lot of those, and Grisham now. They're both wonderful. Priya, on behalf of Ek Women and my colleague Meera Jaishankar, I want to thank you for your time and insights. You radiate positivity and that is such an amazing feeling. For all our listeners, you can catch our episodes on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn at Ek Women Global. Thank you so much, Monica. And go Ek Women. We can do this. Thank you.